Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time it may be while you're listening. Welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is episode 171. We'll be looking at spying numbers 179, 180, and 181. This is the I Am Curious box set editions Blue and Yellow. Two films, buy it twice, buy it three times. The American public sure did at the time. Um, me, my name is Scott, and I'm your host. Joining me, as always, is David Blakesley. David, how's it going? Very good, Scott. Good to be with you again. And joining us once again after too long an absence is James McCormick. James, how's up? What's up? Yeah, not too much. I'm glad glad to be talking about some Swedish films today. <laughs> the greatest country of all, at least for yes. a, a certain type of film. I'm sure you know if this were the 1960s Swedish film, we'd all be like, "Oh yes, I know what kind of film we're watching." This was famously banned, or not banned in America, but almost banned. It went to a long trial to judge whether or not it was too obscene for American audiences, and that exactly turned out as what American audiences wanted to see. It was something perhaps too obscene for them, but at the same time, they were a little perplexed by the amount of the film that did not involve sex and involved discussion of Swedish politics. Uh, and ever since then, <laughs> the film has enjoyed a very mixed re- reception. Uh, Roger Ebert hated it at the time. Several other critics did, if you quite loved it. And that has sort of stuck with it. I remember talking with uh, various members of the Criterion Cast family about this and some people being like, well, I, I would join, but I just can't stand the damn thing. Some people find them <laughs> re- relentlessly boring and just overlong and just hammer away at the same points. But I have to say, I this was the first time I'd seen both of these films and I kind of loved them start to finish. I found them very invigorating and refreshing and no listeners, not just for the sexuality, although, you know, that... Little sex doesn't hurt either, as they say in Sullivan's Travels, but only less. Um, <laughs> but the just the way it tackles politics in such an eager and fresh way, so many subjects that are still very much with us today and that we are sort of told we can't even discuss. Is, are, they're openly talked about in this, these films. Um, but David, these were your picks. Uh, so why did you bring these filthy, filthy films before us today? Well, yeah, that yeah, I, I am very happy to have nominated them and and to have ex- have them accepted into the uh, the Criterion Cast conversation here. Well, uh, Scott, I think you had kind of mentioned offhand at some point in the conversation we had that you had recently purchased the box set, so that was kind of one note of intrigue. It's like, oh, that would be a fun one to talk about, something a little bit off the beaten track. This is still a DVD only set. And probably not coming to a Blu-ray anytime soon, especially with the state of the upgrades nowadays through the Criterion Collection. But uh, I'm also right in the middle of, uh, or actually kind of getting started with my uh, Criterion Reflections uh, exploration of the films of 1968. It's been a little bit slow going. Uh, but uh, this one comes right up in sequence. In fact, my very next post will be on I Am Curious Blue, uh, the second film of of the two. And I'd already written about I Am Curious Yellow, which was a 1967 release uh, last fall. So just kind of the coincidence of the timeline, uh, uh, Scott's uh, recent purchase of the set, and just the fact that you know it does have that kind of mixed reputation of kind of a you know a love it or hate it type of movie. 
uh, I, I also found these films very enjoyable. I'm very fond of these, this particular uh, era that they were, the films were made in. And, uh, you know, just very some, some intriguing uh, uh, food for conversation and thought. Uh, so I'm really eager to hear what you think of it, Scott. Uh, I've got a lot of good things to say. And I'm definitely delighted to have James McCormick back in the mix. It's been a while. And uh, good to hear from you again, James. Oh, definitely. I mean, when it, when it got brought up, I'm like, you know what? I I remember seeing these in college, and I remember really digging them, but not fully getting it back then, you know, my, my young age. But rewatching them this week again for the podcast, I, I'm, I think we're all on the same page. I, I fell in love, especially with um, Yellow. Like, Yellow is more of my, like, cup of tea, but Blue also is a little more bitingly satirical and little 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 surreal but and more you know i i i had a slightly little more trouble getting through that one might have been just the fatigue of it all but i mean we'll talk about it but you could tell these two films were supposed to be just one epic like three and a half hour you know just swedish film from uh vilgot chairman so yeah, I was just really excited. To, I was hoping that I would still dig them. And actually, I, I probably dig them more now, especially watching watching it with all the uh, pseudo-documentary scenes of um, the social classes, you know, the economic classes, and how it's kind of like what's been going on in America for the last few years, especially with the whole, you know, presidential race we're going through right now. And just seeing how some people are just so blind to the fact that there are classes of people and who I, I forgot which, which character, well, not even character. I think one of the people says about basically everyone is the same, but you, you know, with clothes off when they're naked, but when you put the clothes on, there's your classes because then you know, who's who, like that's when you'll know, Oh, he's upper class. Oh, he's, you know, middle class. He's lower class. And I kind of love that, but it, it's kind of scary that it's still, it's really topical. It's really relevant today. And also seeing Martin Luther King Jr. in it. And it just so happened that he, he was in Sweden at the time. And he, that was a big get for them, which was really cool seeing him in that. Especially his uh, um, appearance later on, sort of with Lena, you know, which is kind of a weird little yeah. add-on. Like, hey, Lena, what's going on? It's like, what? <laughs> okay, I forgot about that completely. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that interview really threw me. I thought it was maybe like a faked interview where they just had some footage they bought from a TV station or something of Martin Luther King, and they then cut together footage of uh, Vilgo, uh Schumann, did we say? Schumann? I've already lost track. Uh, Schumann, Sherman, yeah, something <laughs> like that. Sherman, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a Swedish name. I, I, we, we heard multiple yeah. variations of the name um, in multiple ways. Yeah, but I, I thought they might have just cut those two things together, but no, he really got him to sit down for an yeah. interview undoubtedly uh, Martin Luther King Jr. not knowing what type of film he was going to be in, which is also true, I think, of the poet they interviewed, too. Uh, he got oh, the some, Russian, Russian poet, yeah, right? Yeah, he got some flack later on for appearing in the film. Um, well, there was all kinds of, I mean, Olaf Palma, who was like, what, the prime yeah. minister at the time, yeah. and, and the king of Sweden, I mean, at this point, sort of a ceremonial yeah. post, uh, and then uh, it's kind of an archbishop, uh, there's an actually a deleted scene, uh, that we maybe talk about a little bit when we get to the supplements, but yeah, uh, Showman really got an, an incredible artistic freedom, and I think that's kind of a, a good entry point. Like, what what is this movie all about? It's like he basically 
uh, had come up as a disciple of Ingmar Bergman, uh, was a pretty significant contributor on the crew of Winter Light, you know, one of Bergman's, you know, real classic, great films. And he was also privileged to do the documentary uh, Ingmar Bergman Makes a Movie, which was about the making of Winter Light. So while Winter Light was being filmed, uh, Sherman was there kind of doing his work on the film, but also doing some supplemental kind of making of footage, which he was able to put together for a, uh, you know, a, a supplement that was worthy of uh, inclusion in that, uh, you know, great uh, four disc set, uh, the Ingmar Bill or Bergman film trilogy. Uh, so, you know, Sherman basically came up under Ingmar Bergman's wing and uh, had actually made a few films kind of in the Bergman-esque tradition, but realized that, you know, compared to the master, he's never going to be able to carve out his own niche. Uh, and I think he kind of, in, in some of the supplemental interviews and notes uh, that are included in this set, he said, you know, I've got to do something different. And so he went to Svensk Film Industry and said, uh, give me 100,000 feet of film and complete artistic freedom and uh, the budget to make whatever movie I want to make. And somehow or another, he <laughs> he convinced the suits to say, sure, it sounds like a good idea. Go for it, you know. And that's what we ended up getting here, this three-and-a-half-hour jam session of a film of just the ideas that were on his mind. And, and also, uh, I think, a pretty significant collaboration from Lena Neiman, uh, the young woman who's really at the heart of these movies. And I think she uh, she, yeah, she had a lot of creative input in this thing. So uh, it's not simply his movie, but uh, she's kind of a creative force of her own. No, that's what I really liked hearing uh, in the, it's not exactly the commentary track, but sort of excerpts from uh, Sherman's diaries at the time was just how collaborative the process was. I mean, they were working basically without a script and they would just kind of rehearse these scenes and then put them up the next day, more or less, or maybe even the same day, especially certainly in the case of the interviews, but even the more straightforward, almost narrative scenes, they were largely improvised. And it was really refreshing to hear him talk about uh, just the creative process and not try to make it all about himself or not try to make it all about, uh, you know, camera setups and production woes, but actually like the stuff of creating a movie this wild. I mean, you mentioned Ingmar Bergman and he had taken sort of steps in this direction. You know, Persona has some sort of flashes to behind the scenes and certainly is lightly politically engaged. Uh, the silence has a bit of that shame is pretty politically engaged as well, but nothing this far out on a limb, you know, nothing is kind of formless and you really couldn't put this in any one genre. You know, it's sort of a political satire, but it's also sort of a coming of age movie. And it's just all these things thrown together to really show just how in flux even Swedish society was during the 1960s. And when we think about that decade as being such an American upheaval and, you know, maybe some acknowledgement towards uh, what was going on in France in 1968, but you don't really think of just how widespread this was across Western society and how the same struggles we were having here as far as, you know, the younger generation going against the older one, kind of the remnants of World War II and uh, just what kind of society we wanted to be building. But it was exactly the same over there, and maybe even more so because they had to deal with that monarchy. Well, yeah, and they were very close to the the Soviet bloc. I mean, you know, just yeah. kind of a, a border or two over. So, you know, communism and, and socialism and, and a real kind of left-oriented uh, economy and, and government was not some kind of, you know, paranoid nightmare like it might have been for certain parties here in the United States or a revolutionary dream, but it's like – you know, it's a possibility. We, we, and, and, you know, there's even little sing song chants about, you know, we'll be a good role model to the Russians and the Americans and, and have a mixed economy that's, 
you know, the socialist in terms of guaranteeing kind of certain securities for everybody, but but you know, letting the, the letting the free market have a little bit of a say, and the people with initiative and creativity and brains, you know, getting a little extra slice of the pie, and and that's what all those kind of man on the street interviews are that uh, that Lena Neiman is conducting, in, in really in both films, she's really this kind of brash kid who's got her microphone and her little camera crew behind her, and she's just up there. You know, sticking the mic in people's faces and ask, asking, uh, you know, pretty impudent questions. Not not in a bratty way, but just putting them on the spot. You know, is Sweden a class society? And you know, and what are your thoughts on on religion and and on, and sexuality and all these other, you know, hot button issues? And and uh, you you sort of see her, you know, both feeling that nerve of you know uh, of a young woman who's kind of coming into her own and and is kind of got some confidence, but also got a little bit of swagger to her. And it's just really fun. Uh, seeing her get caught up in the spirit of the times of you know questioning authority and and kind of a no holds bar to take on uh, tell me what you got and let's uh, put the ideas on the table and see what what comes out of the mix. Yeah, it's one of those things too where like her going up to these people, she probably because like you know she has a cute look to her. Her asking those questions probably went a little better than if like you know Sherman went up to people or. One of the male With actors, crazy beard and big glasses, but, and you know the whole time. No, it's funny you say about about the beard because I wrote down a note that I felt like I was watching how I looked when I was in college because I had that awful like um, like Abraham Lincoln beard going on, which I guess was the style in Sweden because like half the people in like in the background had that same beard with no mustache, and I'm like, wow. That that was a thing. That was a that was a thing in the late sixties, Sweden. Yeah, kind of a bohemian style, horn rim glasses, turtleneck sweaters, you know, intellectual type of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. And but what I love is when she's asking these questions, and like some people are just like no comment, or they're being very honest. Like, no, I don't believe there's a clap. But you could tell, you know, they probably come from money. And then one of the most like awkwardly yet. I just adored it was when she's asking people about Franco and yeah, the whole the Spanish thing. vacationers, right? Right. And it's crazy to think that while the Spanish people were being, you know, horribly treated, they're all like, well, you know, I, I don't want to think of politics when I'm there. It, it's kind of like if, if you went, actually, it's kind of like how if people go to Russia to like visit and it's like, okay, what's going on there? Well, I don't, I don't pay attention to that. I, I just want to, I just want to see the sights, and it's like, oh my god, that's it. It still goes on. People, when it's not, basically, those countries still want to make money, so they're not gonna, you know, treat the outsiders bad, but the, in, you know, the inside. And like, oh, why did you ask uh, a Spanish person how they feel? They'll, they'll probably tell you they're okay with Franco. It's like, I don't think so. I don't think they would. But well, she I says, she- what'll happen if? If they don't answer the question that way, right. you know, she knows what kind of oppression they're facing and stuff. But it's like it's you yeah. get this kind of blase. Yeah, you know what? Not my problem. You know, I got mine. I'm cool. And uh, the Spanish will just have to figure it out for themselves. Too bad, you know. Yeah, but that's what I kind of love about her. Like, because I, I, I don't know why I had forgotten the whole like cinema verite, you know, pseudo documentary style of this film. I don't know why I, I remembered like storyline stuff, but. I don't know why that fell out of my head because I think that's some of the most interesting stuff because at points you're not sure where they're going with it. And, I mean, you know the way, like, what he believes in, you know, Chairman. But 
what's going to happen with these interviews and how do they tie in with the actual internal storyline of, you know, the sexual nature of life. And, you know, she's had 23 lovers, but of course that becomes an actual like thing, so to speak. But, um, Bill himself, or, or is it Bill or Borgia? Borgia is how I Bor- think of him. Yeah. Okay. So like he's, ha- he actually at that time he has multiple lovers, but that's not a thing. And it, and of course it's a double standard. And, Sadly, that still goes on today, too, where if a girl sleeps around with a lot of people, you know, they're called a whore. And in, in blue, they actually have, um, what is it, the fan Eat mail? Male. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> the internet, you know, like just internet, like, you know, trolls talking. That's It, it was the same exact thing, only they had the time to actually handwrite it, you know, instead of just, like, typing it behind closed doors, you know. They really and put a lot of work into their trolling. <laughs> they wrote the letter. They put the stamp on it. They went to the mailbox. <laughs> I know. Well, I know. Isn't it's Sweden awful. the home of trolls anyways? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, right. it kind of actually got me thinking about another Lena of contemporary times, Lena Dunham. And, and you know, she's a young – yeah. yeah, she's a young woman who, you know, has strong opinions and and is not, you know, what you'd saw, you know, say is the conventional beauty – but you know, she's she's a a, a smart woman, uh, a creative talent, a filmmaker, and yet, how much you know hate has she generated by a lot of bros? Really, a lot of a lot of guys who just probably wouldn't be nearly as offended or put off by that same behavior or attitude if it was a young man doing and, and saying a lot of the same things. And I feel like that yeah, that double standard is absolutely alive and kicking. Uh, you know, nearly what, you know, 40, 50 years later uh, after these movies were made. Well, and Lena Dunham also approaches nudity much the same way that this film does, where it's just like, it's a fact of life. And, you know, uh, Sherman lets uh, Lena Nyman just kind of hang out nude, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a sexually charged scene. You know, the, most of the scenes for nude are either violent or kind of funny, you know, it's just. Yeah, very casual. Yeah, exactly. Um I found this quote by uh, Vincent Camby who wrote about the film at the time it came out and he notes sex is only part of Lena's life, but I don't think we have to feel guilty about being most curious about that aspect of her movie existence. Movie mores being what they are. These are things that we don't often see on the screen and they must inevitably carry more fascination than some other equally sincere elements. At least I know if I walked in the museum of modern art and found a lot of nude patrons, I wouldn't look at Gornica first. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we've kind of like the film itself tackled the politics before the sex, but, uh, the sex is a pretty big part of it. And I think it handles it really well. You know, some reviewers in the very American way are quick to note just how unsexy the scenes are, but I think especially early on just how playful it is. It does kind of have a certain erotic charge that, uh, kind of reinvigorates the film at the halfway mark or so. I mean, not even halfway, it's about 40 minutes in. Um, but kind of gives the film a new sense of energy that was certainly there in the political segments. You know, I think they're really well cut and edited and you get the text flying across the screen and it's jazzy in its own way, but this definitely adds a whole other layer and really personalizes a lot of the politics that they've been talking about. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I always hate that, like, you know, films that have to have like a sex scene, it has to be, the mentality is, well, it has to be like hundred percent, just purely like awesome sex but uh, yeah, hotness this, you know right but but it's like you know what sex isn't always like that sometimes 
like the one little uh, news thing that comes up, like uh, basically about erection, erection dysfunction, like erectile dysfunction, which is like, ooh, same thing with Blue has that with the other character, where the uh, <laughs> the the, the uh, ride just goes down like, and I love well, that it's it's poking fun at that, you know, it's like yeah, it's not always perfect. It's sometimes you know you screw up a little bit. Well, that was kind of the iconic uh, poster scene of the of the you know uh, Borgia and Lena kind of on their knees in that mm-hmm. little you know mattress that flat mattress on the bedroom yeah. you know and there they are unclothed and together and that's you know that was actually the American poster kind of artistically treated and 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 you're right this this uh, you know, the the sexual elements of the film are really what made this amazingly the highest grossing foreign language film. Uh, from the late 1960s up until sometime in the what, early eight, 1990s or something yeah. like that, like 20, 23, is, 24 years. Right, life, life is, is beautiful. beautiful. Right, I yeah, think wow. so. So think about that, folks. Just just let this sink in. More than any Kurosawa, more than any Fellini, more than any Truffaut or Bergman himself, you know, mm-hmm. this this film outgrossed all of them. That is just really mind-blowing. And really, it was just the prurient interest, if you will, in in actual, you know, naked bodies and and you know somewhat not even sim well not you know simulated sex or whatever it was but it was just kind of marketed as like here it is baby the real thing you know and and uh it it really transformed the whole american movie industry and and theaters uh that you know scott mentioned it went on trial well it went all the way to the united states supreme court i mean that that's a pretty high level of scrutiny for uh for an experimental and somewhat indulgent uh, Swedish art film to get, and uh, that's that's the kind of impact it made, and it's kind of diminished somewhat over the years, as kind of some of the scandal per- perhaps just fades into history, and the film itself seems, you know, somewhat unremarkable in that regard. But it was a true eye opener and culture shifter uh, of its time, and I think that makes it pretty important. Oh, absolutely, and actually, it seems like it kind of fell into something of like infamy and obscurity in the decades after it was released. I think in his essay, uh, the company's film, Gary Giddens, I think it's in that essay talks about how, you know, throughout the kind of late seventies and eighties, it didn't really get released on home video. And the only prints you could see were just like horribly faded with terrible subtitles. You kind of get the impression that the film would probably run in more, uh, less reputable establishments in the years gone by that maybe didn't treat the film as well. Um, so Criterion releasing this, and I think 2002 or 2003, it looks like, must have been a bit of an event at the time. I and mean, I wasn't really following Criterion, but I kind of get the impression that uh, this was kind of re- bringing the film back into popular imagination. Yeah, and I think we're really we're, we're talking about Yellow because Blue was eventually yes, sure. released, but it was a, just a pale echo. Because I think probably yeah. a lot of the people who generated that big box office walked out of the field theater feeling a bit ripped off and disgusted like what was that all about like just when they get to the good stuff then that little uh you know cute news announcer gets out there and and kind of does a comic cutaway it's like oh that was it (laughs) and and so it never gives you that big payoff and and again back to the supplements uh what this actually did do was was lower the threshold so that you know really pretty much what we think about uh, as porno movies uh became more uh of the uh art house revenue generator because once uh, the obscenity laws were basically cleared and, and theaters had the the uh, the freedom to just kind of show what they wanted to show, 
uh, well, films like Deep Throat and The Devil and Miss Jones and all that other stuff came out and just kind of, you know, so much for art house. We don't have to get all this intellectual highbrow stuff. Let's just, you know, go right for the the raw goods. And, and that uh, actually, you know, it's it's very interesting that the, the interviews with Grove Press and some of the, the people who were instrumental in bringing this film over really thought that this was going to be the new wave of, of American cinema, but it was a the wave took a different shape, I guess you could say, than uh, than the kind of uh, hybrid of uh, politics and sexuality and cultural kind of uh, you know insur- insurgency that uh, Shorman and and some of his peers maybe had in mind. Yeah, but I find this so much fresher than sort of the oh, American course, new yeah. wave. Um, I'm not like the biggest New Hollywood fan. You know, it was a good decade for movies in the '70s, but I I don't have the same sort of reverence for it that seems to go about in certain film circles this to me is like much more exciting and just the fact that's funny you know so few of those new hollywood films manage to have a sense of humor that goes a long way in selling sort of the undercurrent of uh disenfranchisement and disaffection and all that yeah there's a there's a, a lot of humor i just i find it very charming i mean back to that first kind of love scene between uh lena and borgia you know where you know borgia is kind of just yeah, you know, kind of hanging out in the the framing shop, I guess, where Lena's father works, and Lena comes in and she sort of sees this, you know, hunky, eligible young man, and she does her little flirtatious thing, and you sort of see the sparks flying between them, you know, while the young man is trying to have a a reasonable business conversation with the old man. Uh, well, the next thing you know, the old man goes back to work, and it's time to get get it on, and so, uh, you know, it's just it's very it's very. Uh, cute because you know sort of like what james says you know sometimes that's how these things occurred it's kind of spontaneous spur of the moment uh you just sort of feel that passion and and then of course they 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 start you know getting into it but it's like well this isn't gonna work you know they're standing up in this crowded shabby little room we gotta we gotta get a mattress we <laughs> and so here you are with their little you know pants around their ankles dragging this mattress I was, it's pretty it's pretty charming it's it's pretty pretty cute and funky and 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 uh, hilarious and and there's just a lot of those types of scenes where you know the awkwardness and the klutziness if you will uh really shapes the scene more than some kind of you know uh erotic uh, arousing titillating thing that uh is staged and framed to kind of you know you know get your pulse pounding and so Again, this is a this is a very down to earth movie in so many ways, and yet it it's got a mix of challenging ideas and and it doesn't limit itself to just one frame of reference. You know, getting these celebrity figures, these political movers and shakers, as well as just ordinary folks uh, to to speak their mind uh, makes us a real snapshot in time. And I think it's another kind of spirit of sixty seven sixty eight that I really dig about this film is that. It was a time when people were recognizing, you know, uh, the old rules don't necessarily apply. We we can, uh, you know, we we can make some new choices here. We can we can uh, question tradition. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean the answers we come up with are going to work out a whole lot better, but we're recognizing the possibility of, of changing the old order and maybe creating a society that's a little bit more just or a little bit more real a little bit more authentic you know letting people say what's really on their mind rather than just conforming to some kind of imposed standards of of how life is supposed to be lived and uh yeah and 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 that that takes a certain degree of courage to just say you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make my film a platform for that um 
I think a lot of films of the of that era were were trying to press those boundaries. I think this one actually succeeds in in provoking um, you know, some of that conversation, some of that reflection, and, and showing kind of a cross section of a of a particular society. Uh, so yeah, these films to me have a lot of value of rewatching and and because there's so many ideas and angles coming at you that you know one watch through you're just not going to pick up on it all. So. Yeah, I, I find it a very stimulating, uh, intellectual, uh, and, and and even visual feast. This is it's pretty well shot. I think I think Sherman had a you know pretty good handle on the camera, and and uh, you can tell some of his tutelage under Bergman has paid off, and some of his close ups and his framing, and just uh, you know, some pretty classic uh, you know mid sixties black and white cinematography. Well, and it also from a narrative perspective manages to kind of turn her freedom and turn her search for meaning and all that into you know it shows the darker side of that i think without getting moralistic about it it never really feels like the film's out to punish her just kind of following these ideas to all their various ends you know in some ways they're successful and in some ways they're they're quite horrifying when you reach the end of the road i like her little meditation experiment there (laughs) oh yeah trying to the non-violence like trying to be peaceful and then what what happens uh uh an angry male comes back into her life just to uh, dash it all, you know, with sex and uh, not really violence, but well, the violence comes from her dreaming about cutting his penis off. And uh, which is actually, that was another thing where, yeah, you don't see it, but just the uh, action of it, her shooting him. And then like the dream she had about the soccer players you're talking about. The 23 soccer players, which are the 23 lovers before him. And he's the 24th. And he has to die. So, I mean, that's some anger there. And that's where the whole uh, Martin Luther King Jr. comes back into play where, you know, she's apologizing to Martin for uh, not not being able to lead a life of nonviolence, which I think is funny. And then she goes home and uh, destroys her room and all her work that she's done because it doesn't matter right now. Right now, she's just angry at this guy because, you know, he lied to her about, you know, have not, you know, he never said he had a kid, never said he had the mother of the kid that he was in a relationship with. And then he had another lover, too. Well, he hadn't been with her yet, which but he's he's but she's upper class. So it's it's some good stuff right there. So, I mean, it, it that it's so realistic because, of course, you know, she would freak out. She just wanted him to be honest. And ultimately, you know, it shows that. Sometimes if you just if you come out with it, she probably would have been okay with that because she very you know of that time like pe- you know people were more like let's just be open about sex and let's just you know I'm, I'm going to sleep with people and but I'm going to tell them that I'm sleeping with these other people and he wasn't doing that for her and that you know I I, I I'm a hundred percent with her throughout this film I'm, I'm like oh yeah he's he's an asshole like he could have just easily said look I have this going on but I really like you. It would have been, you know what I mean? But then we wouldn't have a film and, and it's, um, but then through that all, we also have the, the outside, like the actual real quote unquote, real life relationship between her and Sherman and how she's having a relationship with Bourget on the side and he's seeing it and he's getting jealous. And I kind of love that too, because you have, Ultimately, all these guys are just getting jealous or angry at her because she's just having fun. 
you know? Because yeah. even the director is showing that. He's, he's showing that, but then his character of himself is also getting angry about that. Yeah, I really like the way he portrays himself as sort yeah. of... I mean, in the 1960s especially, there was kind of this mythos around directors sleeping with their uh, much younger female stars, and he lets himself be just so petty and so oh, yeah. uh, pitiful about the whole affair and just constantly berating her about small things. And he really shows like the other side of that kind of the dream life that I'm sure, you know, many cinephiles looked at uh, people like Antonioni or Bergman, who he mentioned in the film. Yeah. Um, I love that part where he's talked about how Bergman warned against falling in love with your actress. He's like, well, it worked okay for Bergman though. <laughs> um, well, I think he even says like, Oh, he never did that, which is like a little crack at him of course, but, yeah. but it worked out yeah. for him. <laughs> Uh, but just, yeah, but just the fact that he shows how kind of tyrannical and petty he becomes over really the jealousy of youth, which is really what, uh, you know, older directors are probably chasing more often than not when they date much younger female stars is kind of the illusion that they might still be young again. Oh, yeah. And it, uh, well, remember, it, and, and it ends with him with a new girl. That's right. When she, when, when Lena gives back the key He's like, well, where's the front door key? And she doesn't have it. He's like, well, you could just just send it to me. And he just continues talking to that new, beautiful, you know, actress that he'll he's he's you know, I think. And uh, is she supposed to be French? I think. I, I don't know. know. I'm trying to remember because yeah. I don't know why she had a problem like hearing Lena's name and she's like Lena, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. It's just it's, she's so good in this. Like it's makes me just want to watch like any film with her now like i need to like catch up with her stuff like big time did she go on to have more of an acting career i, I mean this feels almost like this is, I, I mean maybe she did a lot of other stuff and i probably should just easily look it up but um it almost sort of feels like one of those one-off type of things um well, well she was in no, sonata yeah oh okay yeah. that's right that's that right kind of yeah. the big thing i think after that um but other than that i not think i can recall yeah, I, I mean that's the only one I know of of note. But she did a lot of stage work, and because now I want to see. Okay, so she was a real actress. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay, oh yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know when when I when you know, when you get all I mean all that all those ideas all those concepts that we were just tossing around about you know free love and sexuality and possessiveness and jealousy and manipulation I mean that's really just such a vital aspect of this of this film because again her as a 22 year old woman and just all the changes that she's going through in this very kind of short space of time over these two you know kind of parallel films and it's not like one is the sequel of the other they really were just two cuts made out of the same mass of footage. And and what you've got here really is just a, a, probably a capsulation of, of what a lot of us have gone through of, you know, kind of young adults who kind of seize on the, the, the ideas of the of our times, you know, whatever's happening in the culture around us and we kind of grasp this new truth and, and we recognize, wow, this is a this is what's happening now and I'm gonna kind of follow this this uh, this this trend, not in a conformist, not in a, you know, just kind of a wannabe way, but I'm, I'm going to get in touch with this revolutionary thing that's happening. And then you realize that some of these ideas, you know, some of that, some of that free love mentality that might have been in vogue in the 60s or the nonviolence as a, as a kind of a concept, a way of life. And, and we even see some comical scenes of the Swiss military practicing nonviolent resistance, you know, in case Sweden is occupied, we're going to, we're going to lay our bodies on the railroad tracks and stop the trains from rolling, you know, and it's just like, you know, you sort of start to see the limitations of these noble 
idealistic philosophical concepts, of course. And they were just they were swirling all over the place in the in the late sixties and you know, the anti war movement and all of that. But then this very human side comes in. It's like, you know, free love and we're just gonna kinda do our thing and be groovy and cool and all of a sudden it's like the person that you sort of have an emotional attachment to is hanging on to somebody else. It's like, yeah, that's not so cool all of a sudden, you know? And it's like so so these these uh these notions or these ideals or these platitudes turn out to have their limitations, even though they're kind of breaking the the barriers and shattering the the cliches of the old ways and the old stuffy uptight you know mores of 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 earlier generations and you find out well you know what it's it's not so easy just to turn things over and and to just uh you know you know be all whatever liberated or 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 it, the transcendental consciousness i mean those those meditation scenes were pretty hilarious i mean i went through my own little kind of neo hippie phase uh, when i was a young person and you know getting the yoga postures up there and starving yourself and you know walking around naked in the sunshine and <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's just like you know what this is just a bunch of hype you know let's get real again and and so you just sort of see this this journey being played out in front of you and i felt a lot of the humor is just kind of relating sort of my own version of some of these same experiences that i had at, at that age of life and uh I, I just feel like Sherman just did a wonderful job of just capturing all of that uh, for those who maybe can can watch it and relate in their own way. There's uh, one more element of the film I want to talk about, or the films, that is, and that's the titles. Uh, this was supposed to be just, as we said, released as one film that would have been called I Am Curious. But there's something about just tacking yellow onto one and blue onto the other and looking at the title I Am Curious Yellow, and you can't really figure out what that means, and it's even mm-hmm. though it has a really simplistic explanation behind it, it's just the color of the Swedish flag. There's something that much more compelling about it that, you know, this was the first time I'd seen the films in preparation for this episode, but that certainly was part of why I wanted to buy it. Also, I found the set for quite cheap at a used store. Um, but mm-hmm. also just there's just something about the films that kind of captivated my imagination. It certainly doesn't hurt that uh, they've been kind of played on in various forms throughout the years and pop culture. You know, the Simpsons episode was called I Am Furious <laughs> Yellow. Uh, and, yeah, I think, David, in your article for your mm-hmm. blog, you mentioned uh, Mad Magazine kind of playing on the, the title. I, I am lecherous purple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's just something about that construct that just automatically lends itself to sort of an iconic status. I don't know if there's anything more to say about than that, but if you guys have any, any thoughts on that or anything else you want to touch on. I, I look at sort of the, the artistic style of that time, of the of late 1960s. Like if you've, if you've ever had a chance to look at some of the paperback books that Marshall McLuhan and Quentin Fiore were putting out in this time, uh, uh, The Medium is the Message. I mean, Marshall McLuhan, a great critic and, and philosopher of kind of, you know, electronic media of, of that era and the, the changing age of, you know, satellite TV and kind of the global consciousness of, of uh, you know just you know telecommunications and things like that uh this kind of collage aspect of 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 types and words and kind of images kind of thrust together it it, it was kind of a, a new editing technique and kind of a new visual style even if you look like on the inside of the box of the little slip case that uh, i am curious comes in you see all these words like you know sabotage and 
fraternistering. I'm trying to get my Swedish accent going there, you know, uh, varning. And so, and, and, and I remember um, when I was a kid, and of course, I was like around, what, seven years old in 1968. There was a, an album called Rock and Other Four-Letter Words. Maybe I'll send you a link, Scott. You can put a little clip or something in the uh, show notes. So where it's, it's like sounds and sound effects and kind of this... Uh, Almost kind of this mothers of invention type of thing going on, and so this this kind of mashup of of different ideas and and visual concepts and typography and and kind of the unpredictability and spontaneity of it. I think that's very much a a feature of this film. And and again, to me, it has a almost sort of a an evocative or nostalgic feel because I just remember as a kid sort of seeing images and and. Uh, you know, art kind of come at me in this way and just kind of being by the fact that, the, you know, be lined up in different directions. And, uh, so that, that's, that's a, a kind of a powerful tug on uh, to, to me and, and kind of my own thinking back of, of my childhood and seeing other, you know, art forms of all of this type. And so, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I, I really I really like that kind of grab bag style. Uh, I mean, there is a there is a linear continuity here, but you just you know again you don't really know where one scene is going to go connected to the other, and uh, it, it feels very fresh and spontaneous and organic. Even though I'm sure you know there was a fair amount of editing to to sequence the film just the way that that Sherman decided to. Yeah, I mean, if any film lends itself to rambling for a little while about it, it is definitely <laughs> the I'm Curious films. Uh, James, is there anything we didn't quite get to? No, I mean, I think we've covered a, basically the whole chunk of it because you know we went you know we went through all the uh, the sex, the violence, the uh, the social classes. I mean, that's the stuff the, of life, man. Uh, you know, it, it, it's that's what makes life grand. Grand, <laughs> you know, all that stuff kind of thrown in together and done in this uh, in a very interesting way that. It's it's kind of weird that it's not as, I mean, I, we, we kind of touched, you know, you touched on it before about through the years, it's kind of almost got forgotten. And it's kind of a shame because you could tell the um, the influence it's had, not only on Hollywood with all the uh, theaters, you know, showing stuff like Midnight Cowboy would come along and Last Tango in Paris and stuff like that, that would push as far as they could. But also just the style, like the very quick cuts in the editing room and, you know, kind of like the the filmmakers are there present while the film's being made, but you never know when they're going to pop up. And, you know, many And it's always very witty when, 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 yeah. the, when the camera pans around, like, like when, <laughs> when, uh, when Lena is trying to do her yoga and she just can't get it. So she's like, right. her body is just tightening up. So, so then you see the crew <laughs> doing their yoga poses. It's oh, like, yeah. oh my gosh, so like, funny. Do it you like know, this. Just like, <laughs> I love it. It's and so they're doing good. these weird handstands and, and you know, just kind of, you know, contorting their bodies in all sorts of different ways. And, some of them are getting it pretty good. Some of them are struggling. So, yeah, it's it's just very droll. I mean, Showman has this kind of sly, you know, sardonic sense of humor. And and I, yeah, I do. I am surprised sometimes when I read some of the negative reviews. I, yeah. I when I, when I go back to Ebert's review, and I, I actually tweeted a link to that a couple nights ago, like where I say I just think he completely dropped the ball. But almost in Ebert's defense, you know, he was reacting to a film that was sensationally incredibly popular like maybe more popular than it even deserved because of some of the reasons we talked about it was kind of 
you know, hyped up as this, you know, titillating sexual breakthrough. And that's just a fragment of what it's really about. But, you know, given where Ebert was coming from, he probably knew of a dozen movies that were at least as deserving, if not more, of the, you know, exposure that this film got. And I can, you know, there's always that backlash. When something becomes really popular and really trendy, it kind of becomes cool to sort of diss on it and, you know, kind of hate it or knock it down a peg or two. And I've certainly... I, I feel that way myself about some of the things that are real popular, you know, these days, um, or or have been popular over the years. But I, I do feel like this film's maybe gotten a bad knock and maybe uh, should be watched a little bit more closely and appreciatively by people who might have been influenced by some of those negative takes and and maybe written it off. I, there, there's a lot of imagination, a lot of intelligence and creativity going on here. And I think it's a handsome-looking film. Again, even as a DVD only, these these oh, okay. images really, really look pretty nice. There's some really nice uh, scenery and character studies. And, uh, yeah, it's just good composition. This is a guy who knows how to make a movie. Yeah, and from Criterion's perspective, I mean, I harp on this kind of thing a lot, but it really looks like a film. You know, it has kind of the, left some flicker in the image, left some damage. You know, it doesn't look too pristine, which is especially fitting for such a kind of cut-and-run movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty handsome set overall. It looks quite nice on the shelf. Nice sturdy cardboard box and a lot of good yeah. supplements. I already mentioned the commentary, which is probably my favorite of the bunch. I didn't have too much time to get to the rest. I did like the interview with the uh, publisher and kind of getting into the nitty gritty of how they managed to get it released. I like that they called uh, Sherman up and were like, did she actually kiss his penis or was <laughs> she perhaps a little bit off? Because if she w- didn't actually touch it, then we can really get something here. And he was like, I think maybe she missed just a little bit. Um, <laughs> any other supplements that stood out to you guys? Uh, there um, is I, a... Yeah, oh, yeah, which ahead, one are you going to say? That? No, yeah, which one are you going to say? Uh, the deleted scene on blue is kind of, uh, you know, kind of provocative. Um, maybe I'll just put a teaser out there for viewers to check it out. Uh, but it takes place in a church and, uh, it has a little bit of a twist ending. And Schumann, you know, as he's kind of introducing the clip saying, yeah, I, I filmed this and just never quite found a way to, to work it into the film. And, and when you watch it, you'll sort of see why, but it's a, it's a unique little clip there, but yeah, just, Having him uh, in 2002, I think, was when he kind of filmed some of the framing uh, introductions and stuff. That also really does a nice job of putting this into context because he kind of he's looking back now and recognizing that this was kind of his moment of glory. You know, he's had a decent career and, and a good life. And of course, he passed away a few years after this set came out. Uh, but I think just his his personal touch in you know, allowing, you know, the films to come back into circulation and him explaining a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff is really, really sets this off. And maybe for people who just have watched it, you know, you know, in a kind of a theatrical setting without any kind of surrounding context, maybe the film doesn't connect in the same way. But I also just want to talk a little bit about the, the packaging. I mean, unfortunately, we don't get these types of slipcase box sets anymore. I mean, we just had the, the Lady Snowblood, and uh, we've had uh, you know a brighter summer day. I mean, th- those are films that really, back in a certain day, would have gotten a nice little cardboard cover and deluxe packaging. And well, okay, I've beaten that drum probably as much as I ever need to. But uh, this this is a nice little artifact. You know, the two. Two DVDs and two individual slipcases with nice uh, glossy packaging and liner notes and all that stuff. It, it's it's a it's a nice item. I'm glad you got a good deal on it too, Scott. Uh, James, what were you going to say supplement wise? 
Like I was gonna say, the the one I like just because it's only like eight minutes is the uh, the battle for I am curious yellow, which also talks more about the whole censors- censorship and trial, and talks about Barney Rossett, the publisher, and how he came about, and like basically from you know from his um, publishing company, how there's the one thing he says about he sh- instead of buying a new building for the publisher, he should have just paid for more rights for books because that was the more important thing. A building wasn't important. The books were. So I like that, how he mismanaged the money and then they kind of went out. But the stuff he did and like, you know, basically how it's kind of crazy that this film was so controversial, but at the same time, that's what helped its box office like completely. Like people oh, heard, sure. Oh my God, Oh my God, what's in that film? And of course they ran and kind of piggybacking, you know, back with, uh, with the Roger Ebert thing. It kind of makes sense more why he would might give it because of like looking at it as not as titillating as one of his favorite directors and a person he worked with, Russ Meyer, with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and stuff, right, which, right. you know, that's a whole different type of titillating if you catch my drift. So mm-hmm. I, could, I could see maybe Eber going, what's the big deal about this one? Hey, we got this director over here who just basically just like, look at these women and that's it. But, you know... Ebert, I, while I l- always loved Ebert, what I loved about him is like I could disagree with him a lot, and in this case, I would disagree. And I think that's the point of crit- you know critiquing something like it's their opinion. It's kind of been going about too recently, so that's why I never really get angry if people hate on a film that I love or love a film that I hate. Because remember, we're all we're all critics at heart, even if you're not writing it or talking about like we are getting paid for it (laughs) well that's that's the lifelong dream right there but that's the thing but we you know what's the big deal you know everyone has an opinion and that's what makes it great that's what makes film discussion great you know we're all on the same page cool even better because you know we could all bounce off the same ideas and see something but i yeah like this is a film that or both films but in general yellow is i i kind of wanted to get I almost wanted to get like a Blu-ray release because maybe it'll get some, you know, notice again, like kind of wake up people to it. It would deserve it. Definitely. I think it'd be cool. Hey, one other point. I know we're getting short on time yeah, here, but uh, this kind of um, uh, Trevor Barrett and Aaron West and I just did a, a, a podcast, a couple podcasts on the uh, Nagasa Oshima's Outlaw 60s, the Eclipse series set. And this yeah. actually re- reminded me a little bit of a Swedish version of Oshima. If, you, if I can expand the parallel just a little bit. Uh, if you think about Sherman as kind of a breakaway from classic Swedish art house tradition, you know, kind of distancing himself from Bergman, very much like how Oshima did from Kurosawa and Ozu and Mizuguchi and the great Japanese masters. He was a rebel and, and an iconoclast. And, and there's also this, this kind of mish, mashup of, of, of politics and sexuality and unconventional narrative devices, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, almost alienating and confusing because it's, it's so unconventional and it's so, uh, you know, so, you know, could be seen as even a little bit hostile towards the audience, or at least the con- the conventional movie goer who just wants to sit down and be told a story. Well, they're not really getting that here, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of potentially confusing material, and even even the themes of the student protests and uh, the use of, uh, you know, music and uh, we shall overcome. That's also a pretty prominent part of uh, Oshima's film, uh, Sing a Song of Sex. Uh, which I think came out in 
67 or 68, like right around the same time as these films were being made. So I'll just throw that out there for, for listeners and, and cinephiles to kind of ponder. Uh, does uh, Vilgat Shulman uh, kind of uh, bear a little resemblance or deserve a little bit of a favorable comparison to the uh, great Nagasi Oshima? I'll have to see some more Oshima films and find out. I mean, there was definitely yeah, something yeah. in the air in the late 60s worldwide. You know, people were definitely going out on some crazy limbs. <laughs> uh, well, we do have to wrap up. Um, but thank you guys so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. I loved getting the excuse, as I always say, with such a busy viewing schedule, you need an excuse to watch every single film. So I was glad to have the excuse to watch these. Um, Listeners, we will be taking a bit of a hiatus in April because we're going to be recording a very special uh, episode that I don't want to reveal at this time, but look for that in your feeds uh, around the end of April. And then we'll be back in May, at which point I think I think we got to go for it. I think we finally got to talk about Armageddon, guys. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Really? <laughs> I think I'll, so. Because I'll be jumping on that asteroid for sure. All right. <laughs> sounds good. We'll, we'll ride game, it all yeah. the way to the end. Well, there's uh, always plenty of stuff coming out on Criterion Cast. Oh, so yeah. Even if we don't do a main episode, uh, there's plenty of content. So I'm sure everybody you'll be hearing be, from us one way or another. Yeah, everybody should be subscribed to those that main feed because there's just a constant stream of episodes. I hope everyone's catching the uh, new Chronicles episodes. I'm very jazzed about those um, and everything else that the feed has to offer. Um, so, But until we catch you next time in one form or another, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, guys, for joining me. And uh, goodbye. I'm moved out of the